You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Here comes Erica. She's going to read for us, starting in verse 15, Galatians 3. Verses 15 through 22. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and two seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant as previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Thank you, Erica, for reading for us. Well, on this President's Day weekend, I thought it would be fun to focus on the lighter side of presidential politics, thus the table question. And I've got a little game for us to begin. I'm wondering if you can correctly identify which past president fits the description that I'll give you. And we are going to stick with non-living U.S. presidents, so you've got to go back in history a little bit for these answers. All right? If you like Trivial Pursuit, this game is for you. Here's the first one. Who was the first president to be born as an American? Number eight, Martin Van Buren. So all the presidents before him were born as what? British subjects. Van Buren was the first born as an American. Interestingly, he's also the only president whose mother tongue was not English. It was Dutch. He was born to Dutch immigrant parents. All right, so second one. Who was the first president to be born outside the 13 original colonies? It was number 16, Abraham Lincoln. He was born, of course, in Kentucky. And listen to this. Not just Abraham Lincoln, but at least six other presidents were born in log cabins. not that interesting? All right, third question. Which president had the most children? John Tyler, the 10th president, had 15 children. Next question. Which president started his career as a teacher? That would be Lyndon B. Johnson, number 36. He taught at a school in Texas, southwest of San Antonio, way down by the U.S.-Mexico border. All right, and then a couple I thought would be fun, especially for kids and 
students among us, or pet lovers of any age, which president had the most pets? Theodore Roosevelt, number 26. He had actually more pets than we could possibly take time to name, but I'll tell you a few of the more exotic ones. He had a small black bear, a badger, a blue macaw, a one-legged rooster, a hyena, and a barn owl, and a lizard named Bill, all at the White House. (laughs) And here's my last one, somewhat related. Which president did not have any pets, but took care of a family of mice living in the White House? It would be Andrew Johnson, number 17. And he was known to leave out flour and grain for this family of mice, Unbeknownst to his eldest daughter, she was in her 30s and was kind of like the hostess of the White House while he was president, and she'd made it her goal to get rid of the mice in the White House. So she's setting traps and buying poison and buying cats while he is feeding them and naming them. So some fun stories, some fun facts. Of course, most of that is just trivial little details and... Yet the lives of U.S. presidents and the lives uh, for each one of us are defined by a lot more than just a bunch of fun facts. Whether you're a president or you are just like us, an ordinary citizen, we're all faced with decisions every day that get after how you live, what you pursue, what you're going to spend your time on, how to do the right thing. And for the person who is following Christ, those questions are infused with what it means to obey God and live by faith. For instance, how should I treat my spouse? What does the Bible tell me about that? What does God say? Or how should I live out my faith as a student, on my team, or with my friends? Or how do I do the right thing at work if I'm facing pressure to produce results? Or I have a coworker who's slacking off. Or there's an opportunity to complain or to kind of join in the office gossip. All these kinds of everyday questions get after the intersection of faith and what it means to follow God's commands. And today in our scripture passage, we're going to see Paul standing at that intersection of faith and commands as he speaks to the Galatians. If you've been with us in the past few weeks, we know that they had made a critical error that was heading them in the wrong direction. They'd started off so well. They'd heard the gospel when the good news of Jesus came. They received it joyfully. They knew that God's kingdom was coming by grace and that you and I, as believers, have forgiveness and new life in Christ. But somewhere along the way, they got off track and they went from gospel truth to a false gospel. There were some influential people in their community who started to say things like, well, yes, Jesus is great. We can still focus on Jesus. And yet, we don't want to think that that would replace the Mosaic law, what it means to follow God's rules. And the idea was that if you were serious about God, you were going to follow the Old Testament to a T. Keep the commands. Obey what God said. Prove your righteousness. Earn his favor. And we might struggle with this ourselves. We might wonder, is God really pleased with my life? Am I keeping enough of his commands? 
What's the relationship, you might wonder sometimes, between the Old Testament and the New, between keeping God's commands and living by grace? So we're going to look at this passage now in Galatians 3 for some direction on those things. This passage, I think, really has two halves to it. We're going to see what God's commands do and what his commands do not do. And we'll start with that latter one in the opening verses. This really covers verses 15 to 18. Here's what I'd write over the top. God's commands do not change what he has promised through faith. You see, the Galatian believers thought it was possible that maybe God had upgraded his covenant to Abraham and he'd added the Mosaic law. But to address this point, Paul first draws on the example of how a human covenant or a human contract works. So that's where he begins in verse 15. He says, Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. In other words, put it in our language, you can't just decide to change a legal contract that two parties have made. You know this from work, you know this from estate planning, whatever it might be. My son Lennox was letting me know what players the Vikings should be acquiring from other teams this offseason, and he had some big names on that list. And I said to him, I said, buddy, I don't think you can just go sign that guy. He's under contract. His team's not going to let him go. That's how contracts work. They're legally binding documents. And you can't just pretend that a contract doesn't exist or take your magic eraser and scrub out the parts that you want to change. Paul takes that principle and now he applies it to the covenant agreement that God made with Abraham. So verse 16, we'll continue. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, who is Christ. So God made a covenant promise to his people that would be fulfilled in Christ. That's all that, you know, seeds plural and seeds singular. We'll not read that again, but he's saying it will be fulfilled in Christ. And you see where this is going. Paul says it straight up in verse 17. He says, what I mean is this. So analogies aside, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. And that's this upgrade idea that was out there. Between the covenant God made with Abraham, which is in Genesis 15, and then the covenant with Moses, the giving of the Ten Commandments, 430 years passed between those two things. So they're thinking, well, maybe the Mosaic Law is like Covenant 2.0. The whole thing just got an upgrade. But here's the point of the passage. The commands God gave to us in his word do not set aside what he promised by faith. So there's no one-upping the original promise. There is no command that could replace the condition of faith. And remember from last week, the first half of this chapter, we said that promise was twofold. What has God promised? It was justification by faith, which is just the big way of saying we're made right with God by believing in Christ, and it was the gift of the Holy Spirit, justification and the Holy Spirit. And Paul says if these things could be gained by obeying God's commands, 
then it would no longer even depend on his promise. It would depend on what? Your performance. That's what it would come down to. So what does it look like to try and live by your performance instead of God's promise? When I think about it, it looks like a whole lot of scorekeeping and self-justifying. So whether consciously you have these thoughts or it's just at work inside of you, it's how you operate, it's this kind of mentality. God, I don't cheat on any of my schoolwork. I don't cheat on my taxes. I report all my income. I don't cheat on my spouse. I'm not a cheater. It's a mentality that says, God, I'm a good friend. I'm a good neighbor. I'm even good to my difficult relatives. God, I pull my weight. I push my limit. And I bend over backwards to help others in need. But that whole thing is living by performance. You can't get the promises of God by keeping his commands. God chose to give us his promise out of his grace. So that's the first half. That's what God's commands can't do. But then Paul shifts into what they can do. And this is really the second half of the passage. Here it is in summary. God gave us his commands. You're going to see two things. To show us our sin and to lead us to trust in Christ. Paul begins the second half of the passage in verse 19 by asking, why then was the law given at all? Here's the answer. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. In other words, God's commands were given to show us our sin until the promised Savior had arrived. This is really similar to what Paul says in Romans 5 where he says the law was brought in so that trespass, so that sin might increase. But what does he say? Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So God's commands in the Old Testament, maybe the way to picture them is like a mirror. It works like a mirror. They show us what our life really looks like. My teenage daughters have one of those makeup mirrors. They asked for Christmas a a year or two ago. So it's the big magnifying one with the orb of light around it. I, I hate to even walk by that thing because you end up seeing blemishes and creases and wrinkles that you don't even know existed. It shows everything. And it's easier to live in ignorance. But sin doesn't work that way. Sin has to be dealt with. You have to see it for what it is. So you look in the mirror and you say, okay, am I dealing with resentment or envy or a critical spirit? Or am I dealing with lust or greed? Or is it good old-fashioned selfishness? Whatever it might be. What is going on inside me? We had a sick kid a couple of weeks ago and eventually Esther's mom radar was going off and she said, we need to get this checked out at the lab and find out what we're dealing with. So she ordered up two tests. Is it COVID or is it strep? And turns out it was strep. But then what did that allow us to do? To know what we were dealing with and to get after it. God gave you his commands, not as a ladder for you to climb your way into heaven but as a looking glass 
to see what's wrong. David says in Psalm 51, he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. The mirror doesn't lie. And conviction, the ability to see my sin clearly, comes through God's commands. But that might make us wonder, ask this question, can we even talk about God's commands as something that is good? You know, if it increases sin or magnifies sin, is it something that we should really even appreciate? Maybe the law is the bad guy. So Paul asks in verse 21, he says, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? And again, he answers his own question, says, Absolutely not. God's commands do not stand in contradiction to his promises. And Paul is going to give us two bases for that. The first one's in the second half of verse 21. He says, For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. In other words, let's flip that around. Being justified cannot come by obeying God's commands because they cannot give life. It's the wrong expectation from the wrong source. Imagine you need life-saving surgery and they wheel you into the OR, but instead of a surgical team waiting for you, it's your high school gym teacher. And they're going to run you through push-ups and sit-ups and a set of jumping jacks. Expecting the wrong result from the wrong source. You might appreciate the reunion, depending on what you thought of your high school gym teacher, but it's not going to work. And yet, if we're not careful, we can do the same thing in our relationship with God, where we will resort to doing the right thing and trying harder, being a good person, all as a way to gain God's favor. But it doesn't work that way. That's what Paul has said throughout this letter. Keeping God's commands can't justify you. So why did God give us his commands? The first reason is to show us our sin. That's the mirror. And now the second reason comes in the last verse of the passage, verse 22. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So if the first reason was to show us our sin. The second reason is to bring us to faith. God's word is like a lasso that corrals everything and everyone under its righteous standard. That's where we all are, is locked up under the power of sin. But God's purpose is to set us free, that by his word we will actually see how stuck we are and place our trust in Christ. The last verse, in a paraphrase, says essentially this, God's word shows us that we are all bound by sin so that, here's the purpose, we will place our trust in Christ and receive God's promises, not by our own works, but by faith. So you see how this answers the question we started with? What are God's commands for? If we're people of faith, how do we live? What motivates your day-to-day decision-making? Like the Galatians, we can get pretty confused about this. How do we relate to God's commands? 
following God's commands when they go off track can end us in one of two places. Either they get larger than life and become the way we do business with God, which is what the Galatians were doing. Or we disregard their place at all and we use grace as a license to get away with whatever we want. We see both of those errors are put in proper light here in this passage this morning. So here it is in summary, a one-sentence summary for today. God's commands do not change what he has promised by faith, but they do two things. They show us our sin and lead us to trust in Christ. It is the season of Lent now, starting that just a few days ago on Ash Wednesday. So it's the first Sunday in Lent. That's this 40-day journey that we're on from now till Easter weekend. And it's a special time for us to really actually focus on both of these things that we've looked at in the text today. That I'm a sinner in need of saving. And the only way out is by trusting in Christ as my Savior. Personally, my favorite president is Abraham Lincoln. It's probably a name that came up. I think he's the favorite percentage-wise in the whole country. And he once said, The Bible is the best gift God has given to man. All the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book, he said. This whole book. The Old Testament, the New Testament. It's the best book in the world giving us the truth of the gospel that we may believe the promises of God. I'd actually like to use this book to lead us in prayer. We're going to close that way. And I'm going to turn to Psalm 19. Maybe some of our ladies who are here are participating in the Wednesday morning class with Deanna. They're focused on the Psalms. And here are a few lines from Psalm 19, which we can turn into a prayer. And so I'd invite you to bow with me as we read a few things together. Back to the Lord. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. We thank you, Lord, so much for meeting with us this morning in your word and by the presence of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken such powerful and effective promises to your people from Abraham all the way down to us. And that these promises are based not in our performance but are a sheer gift of your grace. We thank you, Lord, for how you use your word, how you use your commands to instruct us, to show us our sin, and to move us toward greater trust and faith in Christ. Lord, we thank you. We pray that you'd lead us deeper into these truths this week. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.